another beautiful day and another awesome guest on Stoke Meter today. We have with this Lisa Peterson. Lisa is the director of clinical services at Stop Soldier Suicide. And then the, the way that we were uh, introduced to her is through one of our other guests, Michael DeSelm. And given that this is uh, September and uh, it's known largely known as the Suicide Prevention Month, I thought it'd be great to be able to have Lisa on as a guest because of her work within not in Stop Soldier Suicide, but she actually has a very unique background in all kinds of different things. So Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I'm excited to be here. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but we're just going to jump right into this because this is a, this has been something that, um, that it really touches close to home because there are so many of my friends that are, are military vets. And then also just in general, so many, so many other friends that have some uh, form of emotional, mm-hmm. uh, emotional health that, that they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And just wondering if you can give us a little bit of your background and what it is that you do over at Stop Soldier Suicide and, and, and yeah. uh, we'll go from there. Yes, sure. So I'll give a brief snapshot of my background. I I knew I wanted to do something in the health and human services field. And I went into nursing first, bounced back and forth in some psychology classes and realized I want to dig deeper um, in the mental health side. So I switched to counseling uh, and it was definitely one of the best things I ever did. Uh, I felt like I was where I needed to be. It took me many years to find my population and my specialty, what I wanted to do. Um, and I, when I found trauma-informed care, it just it just kind of like light bulbed, you know, yeah. all the all the things you expect when you find your niche um, that you that you're hungry for. Because if you're not hungry for it every day, you're going to get burnout quick in the mental health space. And I think that's why we see so many people leave yeah. as clinicians is they don't wake up with that hunger anymore because they never found that one spot. And it's a, it's a hefty, it's a hefty job. It's a, he- a hefty arena. Um, so I started working with uh, some wonderful, wonderful consultative scientific counselors, um, researchers, uh, medical professionals that really taught me a lot and got me on my right path. And so I started working with children um, and children in particularly the abuse space, most of whom were living in group homes um, uh, foster care and things weren't going well. And and that's kind of the big question that led me to exploring more is it's not going well. They're, they've got the doctors, they've got the social supports, they've got medications. Why isn't this working well? Um, and so as I began to dig in, it really became evident that we're not looking at children and or veterans and or active duty military as human beings first. We're mm-hmm. trying to size them up by those symptoms. You know, we're missing the point. Um, and it, that's, I had always wanted to work with veterans. I had many close family members and friends and um, was affected by a friend who saw his friend on base complete and really wanted to be like, okay, well, we're not doing anything in this sector. What are we doing over here? After mm-hmm. I'd worked for many years with children, Um, and did not realize all of the red tape and the bureaucracy that little old me was not going to bust through on my own, um, which was a nice awakening that needed to happen. 
But I thought we, we've got to treat the human because I think we focus so much mm -hmm. on the in combat stuff and the active duty stuff that we don't recognize those people came in with stuff too. And then we're putting them through more rigor. So yeah. um, I can go on and on and no, on about no, that. Well, so, you know, the ironic thing is this morning I was finishing up some exercise and I was coming back and uh, listening some listening some uh, a book on tape. And did you just say book so, on tape? A book on tape. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm, have those? Okay. Yeah, yeah. There it is. <laughs> sorry, sorry. One of the things that came up though was that so many times we look at people to your point as objects or something that needs to be treated or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. And we negate that connection that we have yeah. with the individual. And matter of fact, in many instances and practices, we're actually told to do exactly that. Right. Well, that's, that's the training we have, right? That, that is, is that exactly the, the point. And what I love about what you said is that that connection is vital. There's something that my wife does. She, she works in a clinic and what they do is they have a horrible time finding uh, emotional health consultants, counselors, yeah. and so on and so forth, because especially in light of the pandemic, People have quit. To your point, yeah. they have lost their passion, or they, they, wild, they wild west for a yes, while. And, and they wanted a job, and so it was mm -hmm. a nice, comfortable job. But with with COVID and everything, it just multiplied and magnified everything mm -hmm. that they're dealing with. So much so that they've realized maybe I didn't like this in the first place. It was a comfy yeah. thing, and no knock on them whatsoever. But no, no, what no, I no. have found is the people that are staying in it are the people that truly love it. They are making a difference because they are connecting with the person um, and it, from heart to heart versus a process or a procedure. Yeah. And it's yeah. obvious that you you do that. And I can't yeah. thank you enough for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the what, what are they calling it? There's so many terms for it now. It's like the great resignation. Yes. And it was across all, like we were tested as a, as a collective Mm -hmm. on our make or break points. And some people said, you know what, this, this isn't healthy for me mm -hmm. and I'm going to move on, or I'm going to try my hand at something else. And, you know, we saw that a lot in our organization. We saw that a lot in partner organizations where they were dealing with their own processing of this drama and then having people come to them. And it was like, I always say like people wear all these jackets, the jackets got to be too many. It got to be yeah. too heavy for them. And they had to step away. And, and luckily, my organization really supported mental health and, and testing out different things that would assist to keep employees well and with us. Um, but, you know, a lot of places were just lost yeah. on how to support folks. Yeah. So. Well, I think it's interesting, too. So I'm, I'm a, a nurse as well. Um, I, I worked at, I managed emergency departments through the pandemic, which was was pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> and, uh, but the thing I thought was interesting, so I, I came into the nursing profession later on in life. I kind of did a, a real career change. And I think it was interesting in the sense that it, coming in with fresh eyes as kind of an older person, I was amazed at how health, the health profession had convinced people that working for 12 hours straight with no break and getting punched in the face and all this type of stuff was that. that they wore it as a badge of honor and <laughs> it, it shocked me. I couldn't understand it, you know? And then, so I think, you know, what we've gone through recently 
has kind of been a, a wake up call for a lot mm -hmm. of people saying like, you know, we've got to change what we're doing. You know, I don't want to get too far off track, but it's yeah. interesting to see how that, that plays in too. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I, I noticed and to kind of tie it back into our discussion is that from both the patient side, people dealing with massive mental challenges, and then also on the provider side is you, you, you talk about a person that completed, which I assume means they, they, they uh, committed suicide, yeah. is it's not just that, it's the quality of life that people are leading. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You guys are dealing with and trying to prevent that final horrible outcome. Yeah. You know, but as you know, there's also a huge element of how do you, you know, keeping people pull, pulling them out into a, a, a way of life that's actually mm -hmm. enjoyable. Yeah. So, yeah, no. Well, two things with that, because uh, and I won't jump high up on the soapbox, but <laughs> the I was I was one of those folks who got in the middle of this, converting us from, a, you know, the same adage that we've heard so many times. We were all in office and then we had to complete completely move to virtual and it was only supposed to be two weeks and all of those things. Well, we didn't have any of that set up. And so I, I was like, I'm going to push through for my team. I'm going to show everybody I'm just a, as hardworking as they are. And, and then they'll want to fight harder when I really should have been saying, which took me a year in to realize, are you not okay today? Okay, well, then don't come, yeah. don't come to work today, yeah. right? Like, And that's a lesson I think many people learned that yeah. we shouldn't be bringing them as a badge of honor. Um but yeah, yeah, I I could go on with that as well. Oh yeah, that, that, that I was I worked on Wall Street for a little bit, and it was you would have kids that are just getting in with a yoga mat, and you think, oh, you're going to exercise? No, I'm sleeping over tonight. <laughs> it's something that is not sustainable, and and that's what made me think of our our last guest, Pam Zembic. I don't know if you know who Pam Zembic is. I did hear a part of that podcast. It was very interesting. Yeah. Well, she brought up something that just nailed us right between the eyes. And that was identity reconstruction. Uh, and it was, it was, I'd never heard the term before. Yeah. I can't believe I'd never heard the term before because it's so relevant. It but is. So many people are going through that. And if it's mm -hmm. not done in a way that, that, uh, I don't, I, I guess is meaningful. That can, that can be very dangerous. At least that's my assumption. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I look at it. There's, there's, there's so many components of things happening here. You can look at it from the collective trauma aspect of things. And you can also look at it from just like, hold on, this is a little bit different. So how am I going to go back in? Okay. What do you do when you're trying to learn something? You, you apply education. Right. You talk about it, you normalize it. And that's what really excited me about getting into some of the more educational pieces and trainings that I'm doing now, because I thought we're not even scratching the surface to helping no. people reconstruct. And you can't do that if you don't reconstruct because you have mm. to shoot. Yeah. And that was really, I, like I searched and I like started digging into trainings for a while. I was like, what, what am I like digging for here? Something is missing still mm -hmm. in the, even under the trauma informed care bubble. So I've kind of like redefined the way I look at trauma-informed care, but even, even under that bubble, it's really getting to what is at the root and hitting like a nervous system reset button. Mm. I'm going to learn what makes my body tick. I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to get some more awareness and I'm going to feed that with a routine. 
And that's that reset, I think, mm -hmm. that we, we all need. Well, and it's, you, you, you hit on something I think that's incredibly important. You said, you know, normalize. Yep. And people yeah. will normalize. They will one way or another. Mm -hmm. And the scary thing is, is they can normalize on something that's incredibly dangerous and mm -hmm. unhealthy. Yeah, or they'll yeah. normalize with some help, you know what I mean? Or something mm -hmm. oh, in something that, that leads to that reconstruction that, that Maurice talked about. Yeah. And so I don't know, I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that. Like how does your organization like are they are they capturing people at, at different different oh, yeah. processes in that journey? Are you trying yeah. to target like tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing? Yeah, so we catch people both veterans, active duty, and family members and friends. So we have some third parties that come in as well, which is how we hopefully will convert that individual that they're calling about into a client because they trust us. And then the client is more likely to trust us. Um, we're catching people who we consider low risk. I think there is no such thing as no risk. You'll hear that thrown mm -hmm. around. I'm mm -hmm. sure you have. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really nice idea, um, <laughs> but there's no such thing. And we really work with anybody from that low risk, third party kind of bubble to moderate risk and high risk. Now, risk assignment is very touchy in the mental health field, but we try and do that just for more informative pieces to show folks that people do come in with a spectrum of need on a spectrum of mental health and where they are at this point. Um, and basically we have a model and I'll, I'm going to stay as high level as I can because I will go down all the rabbit holes <laughs> um, because there's some futures, there's some current stuff and then there's some future state stuff that's really exciting to me too. But with the model, we have certain assessments that we can tailor to the individual, but everything from the moment that that person walks in the door, minus the safety and basic kind of like brass tacks everyone has to get is tailored to that individual. So for example, recently um, we have we offer evidence-based modalities. We offer the CAMS, the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality uh, by David Jobes. And then we offer coming soon, Brief Cognitive Behavior Therapy, uh, which is a really nice mix of cognitive processing for PTSD and CBT. It's a really great mix. Um, and everybody gets safety planning, of course, and we have variations of that. But we just started at the beginning of the year the systems linkage model. And so we noticed, mm -hmm. and if you're familiar with wraparound care, it's kind of like that, um, but it's really that gap filler that we saw. Okay, we can give you these X amount of sessions of this great evidence-based care, and we're gonna retrain you to have healthy coping or patterns of behaviors. But then what happens when you're on your own again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happens? You don't have the system of support, you don't know the direction of head, and you haven't practiced it for that long to make it a, a real habit. And that's where that other uh, model came into play is we want people to be successful post-transition. Mm -hmm. And I think that in itself is a very big topic in the military, in the veteran community. Transition is a very hot button topic. Mm -hmm. And then that's where we kind of created this step-down program with life coaching. Mm -hmm. So after they get this kind of bubble and frame and they practiced it for themselves, if they'd like to partake in life coaching, that life coach will help them practice that to make that again, just more solidified as a habit that they keep. And that's what really excites me about our model. And it's, and it's not done yet because we want tracks and we want to build in. We're in that model that I was just mentioning. We're building in a lot of mind body medicine, which is my new love 
I'll say it's new because it's only been about a year since I've been practicing and certified. But um, I, it, there's so many exciting things happening that I think it's because we're offering to human beings. We have variations to offer. Um, and it's really important to have that evidence-based and existential tie together. Wow. That's a lot of stuff, man. <laughs> it's, a lot of stuff. it's a lot of stuff. It's been like... Oh, so, uh, so a question to that though with all the great tools you have how have you helped people overcome the stigma of getting help yeah so um i'm gonna say something that makes people feel pretty uncomfortable i went on to a base <laughs> i won't say which one a couple years ago and um i was supposed to talk about stress management and i really wasn't supposed to use the word suicide um, or really dig into that because it, it gets a little, it, you could be opening a can of worms, right? You could mm -hmm. be opening something that could triage a, a, like a whole level of need that people aren't prepared for. Um, and I said, so we're going to talk about stress, but we're all gonna, also going to talk about killing yourself. And I heard this like audible and like felt this like, <gasps> like, no. And I was like, Ooh, that could have been bad. But I also felt like, and, and this is where that stigma and reduction really comes in is I want to call a spade a spade. I can handle it. Mm -hmm. My folks are trained to handle it. And we want you to know that so you can tell us the ugliest of the ugly so that mm -hmm. we can get it out. I think that's the biggest thing that happens when you don't acknowledge the stigma. You don't acknowledge what someone has just unraveled in front of you. And you just go, okay, thank you. Now we're going to safety plan. And you don't <laughs> acknowledge any of that. And, and you're not, you're not kind of like, you're not putting out there what we want to put out there so much so, which is we can handle it, get it out. Yeah. Get it out. And well, that's the first step. And my, we see that all the time in the emergency department too, with end of life situations where, yeah. you know, the, the evidence has shown that you need to use the language. You yeah. need to let people know where they're at. But then equally important is that you also need to be there behind that to be a support and i think that's where we've we've gotten better as a in healthcare in general and, and i'm yeah. sure with you guys as well is kind of that second piece the transition yeah. plan yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah it's hard too because it needs to be tailored to the individual and it needs to be something that gives you an outcome right everything's everything's in the data these days what does the data say what are we yeah. finding is it productive and it has to be something that shows that and I, that was one of the pushbacks i got with life coaching is I don't think there's a life coaching plan for suicide, Lisa. And I was like, you're right. But maybe it in tandem with something else could be really amazing. And we, and it, we may, we, we may churn it out. We may do something different, but I think the thing that I really love about our organization is I hear innovation being a, a buzzword, like, yes, we're innovative and we're agile. And I love all those buzzwords, <laughs> Yeah. but when the rubber meets the road in this sector, you have to be, um, yeah. Or, you're, or we're going to be looking at the same statistics five years from now. So. Oh, man. Well, and I think, and I, I'm curious how you guys look at this as well, is um, having done, I, I did travel nursing in the LA area, different facilities. Um, I've worked on the border, Southern Arizona. I've worked mm -hmm. in just a, a multitude of different places. And one of the big factors that comes into play is cultural. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you can give the same message and the exact yeah. same verbiage to, to five different people and it can be interpreted <laughs> drastically <laughs> and, and, and oh, yeah. understood drastically different. Yeah. And so 
I don't know if that's really a question, but you know, I, I imagine that's kind of what you're talking about. Kind of that, that, that second piece is meeting mm -hmm. people where they're at and giving them the message in a way that they can understand it. Yeah. And data and data cannot show that. No, it can't. And that's the hard part about some of these clinical nuanced spaces that people want to get into and they're like, oh, it's not hitting where I need it to hit. Mm -hmm. And culture is a big piece of that. Our team goes through a lot of training, a lot of training. And not all of them are veterans. Some of them are mothers, brothers, mm -hmm. uh, family members of loss. They all have this passion to bring them to this space. But the one thing I look for when we're hiring someone to work for us, which is what I think is so important for culture, because you can't, mm -hmm. you cannot be perfect at culture all around for every human yeah. being. And I think that's where a lot of companies or whatever get bogged down because they want to do it right. And I think the one key factor that I look for is humility when I'm hiring mm -hmm. somebody. If someone is willing to be humble and learn and stay hungry and say, you know what, I messed up. Let me, let me get the opportunity to do that better. Then I feel like it just opens up so many doors and it just keeps people in this space where they're willing to be vulnerable and share. Yeah. Well, on top of that, when you think about humility, someone once told me that another word for humility is, is teachability. If you're not, you're, if you're not humble, you're not going to be learning things. And the yeah. funny thing about what you do, it's, it's not a funny thing. Let me, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the fact of what you do is it's, it's very geared toward a lot of processes, steps, right. But, on, but if the processes themselves, and I referred to this a bit earlier, sometimes lead the, it leads the individual to think they're a project and you can't do that. It does. It, it just, it, it just weird. But the, what I love about what you're saying though, and tell me if I, I completely misinterpreted this. It's a fact that you're willing to adapt. You're willing to adapt the processes and procedures, but it's not like you're trying to fit everyone in a in a in a yeah. box here. It's something that is unique to them and is adaptable to them so that they feel that they aren't the the focus under a microscope as yeah. much as we're really wanting you to expand. Yeah. Yeah. That it it that's very true. You're dead on with that. And I think the the issue there's issues all over the place right in all levels of all healthcare mental health systems and i think that we can't ignore like some of its funding right you're funded to do a certain project and you have to check a box that's life yeah you have to stay keep your doors open um and we're fortunate to have that agility that true agility to say okay we're going to have those check boxes and they're going to be these milestone points but we're going to fill those gaps with something that may work better that yeah. may also work. Um, and I, I really think that's that's what excites me about the work that we do here, because I know that the point of this organization is to one day close the doors. Yeah. And our founder comes to many different meetings and many different uh, kind of work sessions and said, okay, when do we close our doors? Mm -hmm. Constantly. And I remember the first time I heard that and I was like, well, that's not good. I just started working here. I kind of need this job. Look at it. And I didn't know, I didn't know all the background of that, of course, but now I know it's because if we close our doors, we've accomplished our mission and then we can teach it to mm. other people. Then we okay. can spread the information. It's not some well-kept secret. Nobody's keeping anything under lock and key. Uh, and that excites me. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Uh, so Here's here's me, and I'm not trained like you, 
I know that you folks have a have a way to assess at least where where a person an individual is in in the the potential suicide journey there mm-hmm. uh, man that sounds so cold-hearted but that's that, that right. that's just the, but getting a pulse yeah it but with with me what do i need to be cognizant of what is it that you would say that if i had a concern or maybe mm-hmm. i there's there's been times that there there's been friends that have snowballed me and yeah. then they're gone uh, yeah. so what, what should I be aware of? And once those things are recognized, how can I help? Yeah. So th- this is a question that we get from a lot of different organizations, family members, etc. And I can say there's one level of things that you will never uncover. And mm-hmm. that, and, and that's, and I think that's where people get stuck though. I think they get stuck with the the person's friend of a friend or their brother or their husband or their family member, or their wife, whatever that looked like. And there were no warning signs yeah. and they were just gone. And that's yeah. the scary thing, right? So that's where we all get stuck because that is a reality. Right. But there's this other space where it's like, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. They changed their mannerisms, their behaviors, their habits, it wasn't them saying, here's my will and getting things in order, but something felt different. And just in the nuanced space of understanding all of those little intricacies, it's just asking a question. I think Mm -hmm. people are so scared to ask, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. And accepting, yeah, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because we got a lot of stuff going on too. And the average person isn't prepared to handle assessment and diagnostic all. And so I think what we've really tried to normalize, even for our clinicians and their families through the pandemic, we're saying, are you okay? Mm -hmm. Or, Mm -hmm. and a short answer of I'm fine. Okay. But are you really okay? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a huge, I mean, it sounds so simple and I, like I can, when I presented this to my team and it's, I, I sit at the top of the team and I can see the managers and I can see the clinicians and I can see our wonderful resource referral and benefit specialists who dig into the, like finding the golden egg that the one person needed in the random state um, and our intake specialists. And I saw it happening and nobody was saying in, anything in-house. Yeah. Nobody was asking each other if they were okay. Cause I don't want to dig into that. Mm-hmm. I've got this going on over here and I got to call these five clients, you know, two hours and it, I could just feel it building up. And I was like, are you, ask if they're okay. Are you okay? No. Okay. That's okay. What do you need? And that's, that's just number one. I'll tell you running a, running a team through the, the height of the pandemic was incredibly rough. And that was something that weighed heavily on my mind was how are they doing? And kind of take what you're saying to the next level that, that was extremely successful for me was I would just say that, how are you? Mm-hmm. And they would say, I'm okay. And then what I found to be yeah. super helpful was say, well, well, tell me what being okay looks like mm-hmm. for you right now. Yeah. And man, I had people that would break down, yeah, that mm-hmm. would fall apart. Just that or, one more scratch deeper, right? Just yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was amazing what a difference that made when yeah. all of a sudden they were like, wait a minute. <laughs> Someone notices, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, it's your investment. You were there. You didn't walk away at the okay. You didn't stop texting. You know, we use Slack. You didn't stop slacking back. You just kept standing there. Yeah. 
So, and so, I also I real quick, also did that for myself a few times, and that was extremely eye opening as well. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Marie. No, well, I I lost a, a little bit of the thought there, but it came something that came to mind was I've there's really no no voodoo on this of, of step by step as much as it's a caring question. One of the things that I often do <laughs> is a phrase like this dude, you look like crap. What's going on? And, and it's amazing what that simple, I can't, I, and I already know you're not okay. Uh, and it's amazing yeah. what the conversations do that Gary, that's what you've done. And Lisa, mm -hmm. I know you, you've done it so many times before, but that's my informal way of let's get down to this, man. I'm not letting you go until I understand, man. And yeah. People have to understand, they have to know that you're vested in them. Uh, again, that's just my observation. But another thing that I that I learned is I have a, a, a couple of friends that they've lost limbs, um, whether it legs or whether it be arms. And in speaking with them, they said, you know, one of the one of the things that is annoying is when people come up to me and it's obvious they're looking at my my lost arm or my yeah. lost leg. They, but they ask nothing about it. And, and so they're beating around the bush and then da, 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 da. Don't open that can of worms. They don't that, that, that's it. And so now what I do is, holy crap, how'd you lose your leg, man? And, and it's so funny because I've had some of the best conversations ever. And the connection yeah. is so much deeper. Yeah. And that, that, that is the establishment of the relationship is very real. And mm -hmm. I'm assuming that that is part of how we get to the crux of some of the things that that people are dealing with that could go to the to what you deal with on a regular day a regular yeah. basis yeah well people feel your intention mm -hmm. when you stand there when you ask again when they yeah. can feel your authenticity right like if yeah. i said that the way that you just said that it would hit completely different to that person <laughs> right but if you know maurice then that's all in the, the same context right yeah. but i think that the intention piece is really important. And I think we have not examined even like the, the tip of the iceberg with the way that that changed during the pandemic in itself mm -hmm. and the way that different, I mean, kind of focusing on our population and the veteran community, a very different close knit community with their own language and their own culture, all of those things. And then especially with active duty, the way yeah. bases changed, what conversations were allowed, the lockdowns, all of these things. We haven't even begun to examine the way people's intention changed and the way it was received. Yeah, And I think that that is the next thing to be explored. I hope to see a lot of literature coming out around that. I know that people are probably like hair, fire, brain explosion. <laughs> like I could write on so many things. Um, but I think that that particularly in the military and veteran community will be wonderful to explore because if you don't, it's just ignored and we're going to have another issue on top of another issue on top of another issue. Yes. So yeah. I'm going to ask you a, a nursing question <laughs> to, to get a, get a, a, a perspective on where, where, where things are at. So it's been real eye opening. To be clear, I did not finish nursing school. That's okay. You got you. You understand. The counseling. So That's yeah. fine. You know you you know how it goes though. You get far enough into it, you kind of yeah. get the gist of it. It's going to be a very simple question. Let's put it yeah. this way. Um, I always love the the one to ten scale. Super simple, yeah. easy. So it's been real eye opening with Stoke Meter as we've had these guests 
where they're talking more about programs for transition for, for mm -hmm. veterans getting out of the military and having that safety net and, mm -hmm. you know, your organization with suicide for mental health and that type of thing. And for me, it's like, Oh, now all of a sudden it must, this must've happened in the last couple of years and everything's great. Where, where is the military on a scale of one to 10, one being absolute worst, 10 being like we've arrived and we can shut down the business. Yeah. When it comes to helping people transitioning out of the military on all fronts, whether it's career, mental health, or anything, mm -hmm. from your perspective. Yeah. I'm going to hit the end button now, and I'll see you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, like, such a, like, that is such a question. Um, Maurice, that's a zinger. That is a zinger. That's a loaded question. <laughs> so, I mean, you could get into many different, you could attack this at, from many different angles. Um, we saw upticks, uh, when many bases discharged folks who didn't get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it depends, that's an example. It depends on why the transition happened as to what the person's experience is generally. Now at a baseline, humans struggle with change and people have their culture in a bubble. I use the word bubble a lot because in this field that just tends to work when I'm you know, explaining things and you're losing that bubble. We hear a lot of veterans who are not extremely suicidal yet searching for that purpose. Yeah. So that's baseline. But depending on the circumstances that people transitioned out, yeah. truly affect their next steps in life yeah. and their mental health and all of that entails. Um, and we saw a lot of that again, like I said, and, and there was around the January time where really things picked up with that. We have seen over the last four months, extreme mental health where folks are being um, restricted. They're not allowed on base, but they're not discharged. They're waiting on discharge. Mm -hmm. They're waiting for the label that is associated with discharge, which means your VA benefits, all of those things. Um, and it has been really sad overall to see mm -hmm. some of those things. Um, but it really does depend on how they transition out. But again, even at baseline, you're you, you're losing a piece of your culture because you're not living in the now. Yeah, yeah. And so that's some things we rebuild too. We we do a lot of peer support stuff, and we have a lot of partners that are really wonderful at rebuilding the social connection. Life coaching also helps with that. Like, what do you want to do now? Yes. The only the only caveat I'll say is if they leave the military, there's a there's a lot of caveats, but this particular one, if they leave the military before they get their trade set. Mm -hmm. They're leaving mm -hmm. sometimes without benefits, sometimes without that trade, and they're they're like doubly lost in their perception yeah. and their emotions. Yeah, that's actually something that that uh, Pam brought up too. You lose your sense of purpose, and yeah. if there's not something to focus that a purpose upon, yeah. it, there, there's that feeling of being lost, mm -hmm. and it, it's it's so. It, it, it's something for so many that might be hard to understand because they it's it's life of comfort whatever it might be but that's a very real thing yeah I, well I, i've under i've underappreciated underappreciated what a high risk situation it is coming out of the military because yeah. you're, like you said you're you're potentially losing your identity your community your support system your structure your what, yeah. what you're doing for a career i mean it's it's crazy. I mean, at some point, I'm, I'm I'm impressed that people transition as well as they do. I know, I know. Yeah. It's it's literally like I always compare it to like a jolt or a flick of your nervous system. You've been trained to trust these people beside you, live yes. with them, eat with them, protect their life, and then you're saying, 
okay, now go be normal without all of that. And yep. we'll, we'll see you later. And, you know, and it, of course it's not that simplistic, but in the mind of a body's and the, the mind and the body's processing, it's extremely complex. Mm-hmm. You really changing that shock of the nervous system. Um, and, and we see that, that lost kind of wandering mind trying to find that awareness of who am I? What do I do now? This doesn't even feel natural anymore. We see yeah. that a lot of things. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so many things. That, well, well, with that, I know we've been talking about the assessment and all these things. I'd, I'd like to know a success story you've seen. How, what, what, uh, what did that look like? Where were, where was the individual yeah. at? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to pick from, not because, you know, one thing is so wonderful, but because our coordinators are, they're dug in so deep because they care, they will make sure something changes. Even if it's not like the overall life-changing goal, they'll make sure something changes. Uh, I've seen so many things happen over the past years that it kind of, blends together in an essence of I've seen people stay consistent in staying sober. I've mm. seen people stay consistent in trying to figure out why their husband or wife and them don't get along anymore. Mm. I've seen people finally realize the military had nothing to do with my trauma. Mm. And I've blocked that out. Oh. I've, I've seen some really amazing things. The biggest success story that I think that I, when i um, from time to time, I do work directly with clients still, and especially if a model is being tested out, I'll get in there because uh, I like to see it for myself. Right. You know, hearing about it is great, but I like to see some of that for myself to just like really believe in it. Um, and I had a person come in front of me and the presentation was just all wrong. I couldn't figure out what I was looking at and I'd never had it to this severity. And I know there's probably clinicians out there right now like that happens all the time. I've had it. This was just odd and I could not figure why. So I'm starting my assessment for this particular client. We were doing an evidence-based modality. So there was a lot of check boxes to go through because this is how this person was going to come into our system. And I thought something's wrong. And he was completely not telling me who he was. Wow. and from and now I could spend three days dissecting that case. But from that moment on, he started telling me and I was able to have some of those more pointy questions. But had I done that initially, it would never have worked. He would never have come back to the next ses- session. And that is extremely hard for veterans to invest, to take down some of those walls, to normalize all of those things. But what ended up happening is things were uncovered throughout the time that we worked together and we ended up getting him with some of the correct diagnoses started work. And there were many diagnoses that were transformative. And I, I like to worry less about getting the label, but for the VA and for disability and for all of the things that need to come along with that, that I can't provide, we have to, but that was really transformative because it normalized that he, he wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. He, he thought something was like, something's wrong with me and things will just never get better kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were able to normalize that and break that down. And now he is getting the appropriate treatment from the appropriate places. And it took, that sounds really quick. It took some time. It took about six months um, to kind of unravel all of that, get the authorizations needed for the tests that were needed for all of the things that needed to happen. Um, but he's alive and he's awesome. on a bed. 
Isn't that an interesting concept, though, is, you know, so many times we assume that, you know, let's, let's t- take the case of a soldier is that they're going into a new environment, the military, you know, a- a.k.a. the military. Mm-hmm. And we assume from a mental health standpoint that they're a clean slate, that they're they're, yeah. they're good to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yet that's what's so complex about mental health is we're coming into any situation with who we are and our exactly and how we were programmed from a child and our yeah well, I mean, what i loved about that that particular example though too is you didn't stop the session restart and go okay we got to go back to this point you yeah. let it you let it dovetail into something that created a very safe environment for for him to really express he did the work yeah, he did the work. I'm. I, I like to say I'm the GPS system. He typed in where he wanted to go, and he stayed the course because that was not, he was having to live through that with yeah. me. And um, you know, he's a very brave individual, and he did the work. He did. The Man, work. that's awesome. It is. This is. This has been fantastic, Lisa. Just there's so much more that we could delve into on this and just given the month that it is, I, I, I just can't thank you enough for, for that very purpose. There's things that I didn't know. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm looking at some of my notes, but the latest one, I'm the GPS system. I think that's going to be the title. <laughs> at least that still exists. At least I didn't say I'm the Garmin. I, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> Maybe let's a book on tape or something. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, book on tape. <laughs> I love it. But no, this has been both an eye-opener, but it's just very refreshing to to know that there's organizations like you. They're helping so many people that have given so much to us. And it's a a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I I just say, keep it up. Keep it up. Just don't let anyone dissuade you. This is so, so awesome what you do. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful to Michael for setting this up. That's yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the space today. And I think um, every day, it's just so important to remember in these conversations, the normalization, it just leaves everybody with a smidge of hope. Even if it's not a yes. big chunk of hope, it's a smidge of hope. And, and that's what, um, you know, our team really tries to, to leave people with. Yeah.